The theme we've been talking about and thinking about together as a community is Through New Eyes. This sermon series, it's called Through New Eyes. We're operating under the assumption, I think everybody would agree with this, that how you look at something really matters. Meaning, we don't just look at something objectively and see it and then that's it. We make interpretation. We, we are looking at things and one person could see something and see one thing, and it's the very same thing, and another person can look at it and it looks different to them. And sometimes it's even the case where you yourself will look at something one way and then with new information, with new eyes, you'll see it in a different way. Here's an example. Imagine this afternoon after having lunch, you drive out into the country and you go to one of those great New Jersey antique shops. And the owner uh, lifts up to you an old antique fountain pen. Probably what you would think if you saw that is you would think, that's an old fountain pen. That's what you'd think. Uh, But what if that uh, owner was able to pull out documentation that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that that old antique fountain pen was the very same pen that Abraham Lincoln had used to write the Gettysburg Address. You would see that pen differently. You would see it through new eyes. And that's the case with everything in our lives, the circumstances in our lives, the other people that we know, we ourselves, how we see all of those things really, really matters. And over and over in scripture, what you see is that God wants to give you new eyes through which to see everything. He wants to give you his eyes to see your circumstances and to see the people around you, to see yourself so that you don't see them through any other eyes except his. And the way that we're looking at this is we're looking at the life of David. We want to look at examples in the life of David where God gave him new eyes. And the reason that we're looking at David's life in the Old Testament, there are two reasons really. The first is that the life of David shows us the longest expanse of a life that you can imagine. The great Hebrew and literary scholar Robert Alter of Cal Berkeley, he's right. He says that the life of David is the longest and richest narrative of a life that we have in antiquity, in the Bible or outside of it. It's this long life. And so you go to the life of David and you can see every single possible circumstance in life. You see him at the very beginning of his life and he's a young shepherd boy and he is overlooked. He hasn't really done anything yet. He's all alone. And you see all the permutations of life then going all the way towards the end of his life where he's the king. And now he's ascended to the throne. And he has a lot of great accomplishments. He also has a lot of really devastating mistakes that he made. And he's not alone anymore. When David gets to the throne, he's surrounded by what the Bible calls his mighty men. David's mighty men in the Bible are this this group of counselors and this group of warriors who are around him and they were loyal and they were faithful and they were fierce and they helped him. And so we look at David's life to think about this theme of new eyes and each one of us, because we all come from different circumstances, young and old and all of these different ways that we come, we can look at David's life and we're gonna see something that fits us. His life shows us every kind of life you could have. The second reason that we're looking at David's life is because we want to see Jesus. And that might sound counterintuitive. You think if you want to see Jesus, just look at Jesus. Except Jesus in the Gospels tells us a number of times that everything written in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, everything that is written is written about him. That the meaning shining forth 
through everything in the Old Testament is the good news of the crucified and risen Jesus. So if you wanna look at Jesus, one of the places you can look at is the life of David. In fact, some of you know that one of the names that Jesus was often called was the son of David. He wasn't David's biological son, but in David, we're gonna see a picture of Jesus, and we want that at this church because the foundation of this church The ground upon which we walk, we build everything, is on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and his grace and his love for all of us. We want to be disciples, and we want to follow after him. So we're going to look at David's life, and we're going to try to see through new eyes the grace of Jesus. So we're to a point in Jesus's, I'm sorry, in David's life that's not there at the beginning where he's young and he's all alone. He's not there towards the end of his life when he's on the throne surrounded by his mighty men. The story that we're gonna look at today comes right in the middle. Here's the context for it. David has already been anointed as the king. The current king didn't feel real great about that. As you might expect, Saul heard that this other man had been anointed king, David, and he was going to be ascending to the throne, and so Saul didn't like that. They worked together a little bit. David was really deferential and loyal, but eventually Saul was filled with jealousy, and that jealousy became murderous rage, and he tried to kill David a number of times. So David goes on the run, and he becomes a fugitive, and he's running from Saul, and that's where we're going to take up the story right here. This comes from 1 Samuel Chapter 22. David left there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him. A couple things to note here, just this one verse. First is you see his family. Now, his family, who initially overlooked him, who didn't think much of him, who even ridiculed him sometimes, now they've seen the power and presence of God in David's life and they're rallying around him. It's a good thing. But here's the greater question. Here's where the rubber's gonna meet the road for many of us. Here's the question. How is it that David now is in a cave? He is in a deep, dark cave. Why is he in a cave? He's been anointed as the king. He has had the course of his life set, God's power and presence. He had hands uh, placed upon him. He had oil anointed. This were all signs of God's power and presence, but now he finds himself in a cave. This God who is so good who says, David, I'm gonna use you. David, you are gonna be a king. David, you're gonna be great. Why is he now in a cave? Why is he now suffering? Why is he now facing this, this, this time when he is being betrayed by Saul? And, you know, I was thinking, it's not unlike many of the beginnings that you and I have. David was anointed king, and now he finds himself in a cave. And sometimes it's the same for you and I. We start out a job, or we get married, or we get baptized, or we endeavor to live life in a new way, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a cave. How did I get here? And David is asking the same question. We know for a fact that David doesn't feel great about being there. He didn't think his life was going to turn out like this. He didn't think he was going to have to face this kind of adversity. And one of the ways that we know this is because we have some of the prayers that David wrote when he was in the cave. He kept a prayer journal. He got it right down at at, uh, Barnes and Noble. He gets it, you know, and each morning he would get up and he would do his prayer journal. And some of these prayers that he wrote are in the Bible. Let me show you a couple of them. Here's the first one, Psalm 142. 
a masculine of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. With my voice, I cry to the Lord. With my voice, I make supplication to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. A little word of, of, of note here. It says, a masculine of David. That's a Hebrew word. Not many scholars can really figure out exactly what this means. It's probably a musical term of some kind. But the point here is that that didn't come from a current day editor. It didn't come from a translator. This is in the earliest manuscripts that we have of this prayer. This was written in the cave. David is crying out. He's telling God his trouble. It's not the only one. Here's Psalm 57. Of David, a victim, when he fled from Saul in the cave, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. He's crying out. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. Has anybody here ever felt a destroying storm passing by? Maybe one that's up overhead, maybe one that's inside. David is feeling the destroying storms that are passing by, and he's in a cave. He's a king, but he's in a cave, and he's having to face this kind of adversity, and he doesn't know how his story is going to turn out. Now, listen, here's the first place that I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask God to give you new eyes. I want you and I to have new eyes to see that this cave that David is in, this cave of adversity, of betrayal, of suffering and of sorrow, it's not only a cave of all those things, it's also can be a cave of transformation and a cave of God's grace and a cave of God's presence. And I want to be really, be, I want to be careful when I say that because it may sound to you like I'm saying all those terrible things that are happening in David's life, God is making those happen. That's not necessarily the case. God didn't betray David, Saul did. And betrayal isn't a good thing. Being a fugitive is not a good thing. And not having enough to eat. There are other places in the story of David where he's out with these people and they don't have enough to eat. And none of those kinds of deprivation are good, but God can be in all of those kinds of situations of sorrow and difficulty and he can use it, he can be present we don't need to see those things as good, but what we can see, take a look at this prayer. It's still up there. It says, be merciful to me, O God. David is crying out for mercy. Was he a person that cried out for mercy before? I don't know, but he is now. He, he's calling out. He knows that he needs God and he needs other people in his life. Did he believe that and know that before? I don't know, but he knows it now. And it might be not until he got into that cave, not until he got into that situation where the people that were supposed to take care of him didn't, where the God that he thought was going to just make everything happen, that wasn't happening. He's going to have to cry out to God now. And I want all of us to think about this together because I'm looking out at a room full of people who are gonna have to face their own storms and who are going to be in their own caves. I know it because I know that each one of you is human. And part of the human condition is having things not turn out how you thought they were going to the wedding, the baptism, the new school, the children. You, they don't turn out like you thought they were going to. I thought it was gonna be great. And now you find yourself in a cave and we need to be able to have new eyes. We need God's eyes to see those things so that we don't see them only as, this wasn't supposed to happen. This is just miserable. It's just bad. Yeah, it is. 
But also, God is doing something in that cave. He's transforming David's life. He's doing something beautiful so that he doesn't have to see that cave only as a place of misery. It's also a place where he gets to call out to God, where he grows closer to God. I'm looking out at all of your faces. Each one of you, I don't know what your suffering is gonna look like. I don't know what your cave is going to be, but I know for certain that you're going to have one. I know for certain because it's a human thing. I also know it because I've read the Bible. And the Bible is not a litany of people who have great health and wealth and success, and then they move on to more success. That's not it. Each one of them have their own caves. So you have Hagar. Hagar turned out of her own house and abandoned into the desert. The desert was her cave. Joseph. Joseph, who ended up in a dungeon, any Bible scholars here, twice, that was his cave. Daniel in the lion's den, he ends up there because he did the right thing. He obeyed God and he was faithful to God and he ended up in the lion's den. Every single one of us is going to end up in a cave at one point in time or another. How are you going to see it? Are you going to see it just as a place of unmitigated disaster? I, it's not good. God isn't with me. No, no. We're being shown here that to be in this cave, it's hard. It doesn't mean that God sent those things. It doesn't mean that God is punishing you. It doesn't mean that any of the circumstances were inflicted upon you by God in a kind of malevolent way. It simply means that God can be with you in all of those things. And he can be with you not only to be present and not only to heal you, but also to transform you. Because it's the people who have been in the cave that can sometimes become the people who God uses in the most powerful way. You know, I know people in this church. I know people in this church who have gone through the cave, the difficulty of divorce, that dark, difficult time of breaking and separation and, and, and hardness, and then be able to come out of it on the other side so that they then can walk with people who are facing similar situations. I know people in this church who have lost people, lost parents or lost siblings or friends or lost children, the unimaginable grief. And they were able to be with God and to see that not only as a time of just a crucible of suffering, but also to be transformed, that God is with them and now they get to walk with people in the same kind of way. I know people in this church who have faced great grief, great trials and suffering, and then they translated that by God's grace into a willingness to serve and love orphans and the homeless and those in great financial adversity. You know, there are any number of things that can happen when you get your heart broken. One of the things that happens when you get your heart broken is your heart becomes hard. But if you see it through new eyes, God can take your broken heart and make it an open heart. You know that place in Romans, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. How do you become a person like that? I mean, really, somebody who can rejoice and just dig it when somebody else is rejoicing and you rejoice with them. How do you do that? Or when somebody is weeping, that your heart breaks right along with theirs. Most often, it is the people who have been in the cave, who have been in the darkness of suffering and who have been there and realized that God is with them too, who have realized that God is a God who can bring light out of darkness and who can bring life out of death, 
the God whose son, Jesus, lived a life of complete obedience and faithfulness and in return bore in his body the sins of the world, the brokenness that all of us carry. Jesus took it into his body and bore it on the cross and was placed on the cross and then they took down his battered and broken corpse and they put it in what? A cave, a tomb. It was a cave, it was dug out of stone. But God didn't let his Holy One see corruption and God raised him up from the dead. And now he is alive forever and he's praying for you now and he is with you now by his Holy Spirit. And you can be assured that the one who is with you right now is somebody who knows what it's like to be in a cave, to be under the tomb, to be submerged in death. He has been there and he has been through it by his love and grace. And so that's the one that walks with you. Do you believe that? Do you know that the one who is with you in the cave, he's been there too? Let's take a look, keep taking a look at, uh, at David in the cave. Let's go back to his cave. Verse 22, or chapter 22, David left there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. You know what Adullam means, by the way? It means refuge. It means hiding place. When his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him. Now, I already pointed out to you that he's there praying David's praying in the cave. He's praying for help. He's asking God to help him in his time of need. And our God is a mighty and awesome God. He answers prayer. He answers David's prayer. David says, I need help. And in the next verse, we see the help that God sent. Take a look. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, David, and he became captain over them. That was the answer that God gave to that prayer. David's in really big trouble, and what does God answer and give to him? More people in really big trouble. <laughs> he became captain over them. Great team. Those who were with him numbered about 400. That's quite a group there in that cave of people who are in distress. What kind of distress were they in? Were they in physical distress where they were sick and injured and were physically in distress? Or was it mental and emotional distress? Yes, it was. Uh, was it debt, spiritual debt? People knew that they couldn't pay their own spiritual debts, knew that they were indebted to God? Or is it people who were financially or monetarily in debt? Yes. People who were, it says here, discontent. That's the Hebrew word mar. It means bitter. People who are bitter, it's the same word that's used of food or drink that you can't drink or it will make you sick. They were bitter inside. And those are the people that came out to David in the cave. They gather around him in that cave, people who are there. Now, I'm gonna ask you a question and I want you to think of the answer, but I don't want you to say it out loud. I want you to think about this though. David is there in the cave and all these people who are discontent and in debt and in distress, they come out. Why do they go out there to David? Think about it in your mind. What are they doing out there? What drove them out there? Why did they go? The only logical answer I can think of is they weren't getting help anywhere else. The king, Saul, who's in power, he must not be the kind of king who helps people who are in distress or who are in debt. They're not getting any help, so they hear about another king, 
a king who is acquainted with grief and who knows sorrow. They go out there, they think maybe he'll help us. And that's why there aren't any rich people or people who have it all together who are going out there because the current regime is doing just fine for them. It's the people in real trouble, the people who don't have it together, the people who only have questions and not many answers. They're the people who run out there to David. 400 of them in a cave. I don't know how big that cave was, but it must have been kind of crowded. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be in a, in a, in a gathering like that? All together, uh, people, like a couple hundred people gathered together, people who were in distress and in debt and discontent, all gathered together. Can you imagine what that would be like to be around people like that? Are you tracking with me? <laughs> all people gathered together who know that they don't have it together. People who are in difficulty. Friends, that's the church. The cave is a picture of the church of people going out to a king who they hope can help them because they're not getting any help anywhere else. They have to go to somebody who knows their sorrow, who can be a captain over them. That's why they're out there. And the reason that I know that this is a picture of the church is because I've read the gospels. Look at this from Mark. This is the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Jesus has been anointed. He's been baptized as the king, but he's not quite yet ascended to his throne, so to speak. And this is what it says about the people who go to him. That evening, at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. That's the cave. That's the church. That's us. Friends, this cave is a picture of the church, and it's a picture of the church as a field hospital. Do you know what a field hospital is? It's a hospital that you have to set up on a battleground because people can't get to the real hospitals. It's a hospital that gets set up when a natural disaster happens. It's right there in the grounds, and it's right there, and it's for people who are in the midst of the battle, who are in the struggle, and who are getting hit, and who are distressed, and they're not doing well, and so they have to go to the field hospital. That's what a church is. It's a place where you go to get healed when you're in the middle of the battle and you're in the middle of the struggle. In a good field hospital too, they don't do it like the hospitals here. I know they have to ask these questions in hospitals, but you know when you go to a hospital, what do they ask you? Can I see your insurance card? I'd like to see your insurance card. What is your, can you wait here? No, they don't ask that in field hospitals. When you get to a good field hospital, they don't say, where's your insurance card? They don't say, how did you get hurt? They don't say, what side are you on? What do you believe? How did you get injured? Was it your own fault? The field hospital of the church, nobody should ask those questions at all. Because the captain of the field hospital, the captain of the church, has given very strict orders about how to get into that hospital. He's given a command, and I want you to hear it. He says, come to me, all you who are weary or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how you get into that field hospital, this field hospital. And if you want to get into it, that's all you have to say. You say, I'm burdened. I'm in debt. I'm in distress. What kind of distress are you in? Physical distress or mental or emotional? Yes. 
What kind of debt are you in? Monetary or spiritual? Yes, that's how you get in. And if you feel like you're fine and if you feel like everything is good and if you feel like the regime, the current regime can help you, you're probably not gonna wanna come to a field hospital. But if you've been given the new eyes to see that God is at work when you're in a cave, when you are in distress, that God is most present in those places where everybody else wants to run from, that's the place that God is at, and that's where all these people are running to. A church is a field hospital, friends. It's a cave. It's a refuge for people who need help. And it's easy to see a church as something else. If you don't have the right eyes, you might say, well, a church is the place where I go and everybody believes the same things that I do. A church is the place that I go and I get a little spiritual uh, a little refuge during, the, during Sunday and then the rest of the week. And that's fine. But what's being talked about here is something far different. And I hope that Renaissance Church can see ourselves. I hope that we see ourselves as a place where it's the people who are in distress and in debt and in discontented and people who are broken and people you look around. See, that's who you're sitting next to right now. You're sitting next to people who are in debt. And you're sitting next to people who are in distress. And some of you know that. And some of you may not. But it doesn't matter really either way. That's who we are and that's who each one of you are. And if you don't see that you're in distress and if you don't see that you're in debt, you don't have the right eyes yet. But also, I want you to see that if you have those eyes, you're also going to see that right here in our midst is the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of those who do not have it together the captain of those who need the only kind of help that he can give. And he is present and he is with you no matter what kind of cave you're in. Here's the last part. Let's get to this last part. And it's the part where you find out that God not only helps people who are in the cave, he transforms them. I've already alluded to this, but I'm gonna put it a little bit more pointed way. You know, I made a reference to the mighty men that were around David. Do you remember that? When David ascended to the crown, when he ascended to the throne, the way that he got there, God gave him a small group of counselors, of warriors, of, of advisors around him. And there's a description in the Bible of what the character of those people was like. Listen to this. This is 1 Chronicles 12. It's describing his mighty men. Mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and who were swift as gazelles on the mountains. Those were his mighty men. You know who those mighty men were, right? They were the people who were in distress, and the people who were in debt, and the people who were discontent. It's those people that got transformed. They came out to that cave and they became the people then that God used to help establish his kingdom, the people that walked with David all the way. That's the transformation that happens when you're in the cave. You become a woman or a man who is mighty because God has made you that way and you got there not because of your own strength. You got there because you ran to your captain. You ran to your Lord who is the one that could help you. You know, I said before that you're sitting alongside people who are in distress and debt and discontent. You're also sitting among and sitting next to mighty women and men. You're sitting next to people who can do great things because they have been in the cave and they've been there with God. And they've been there with the one who, if you have new eyes to see it, if you have God's eyes, you can see what God can do even in the darkest places. Would you come to him? I know some of you have done that. 
But I want to know if you would come to him, come to that one. I know you're going to be in your own cave, but would you go to Jesus? I like some of those old hymns. Do some of you like some of those old hymns? One of them says, come you weary and heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Dear God, we give you thanks that you are with us in the cave. You are with us in the dark. You are with us in the tomb, and you raise us to new life. Those words, many of us believe, some of us have a hard time believing them. Even as we say them, God, help them not to be just words, but help them instead to be the real way we live our lives, to see that even when we're in the dark, you're with us, to see that you can transform us through the trials and difficulties of our life. Every single person here has that, God, because that's what life is like here in this world. It's a war zone, and it's hard, and we are indebted monetarily and spiritually. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have paid the debt that we cannot. And we praise you and thank you for that. Help us now, transform us, make us into the people that you want us to be. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, that you see what we can be and help us to get there. We give you thanks also, Lord Jesus, that you love us just as we are. You don't love us as we will be someday. You love us right as we are now, but give us eyes to see what we might become. And I pray that for each person here, each person watching. I pray that for myself. By your Holy Spirit, transform us even through the difficult things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.